Absence makes the heart grow fonder. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. You don't realize how much you take something for granted until suddenly you aren't able to do it anymore. These cliches were certainly true for me in regards to gathering for corporate worship at the church building on Sunday mornings. For many months at the beginning of the lockdown, as we were suddenly forced to transition from exclusively in-person worship gatherings to exclusively online worship gatherings, there was a wasn't a lot of time to stop and reflect about what was going on. We were just trying to figure out how to change our entire ministry model and service format almost overnight. However, after a couple of months of experimentation and problem solving, the dust settled and we found an effective way to put together video-based services and connect through an online platform. This was a big transition though, and I just want to take a second to recognize the hard work of those who were involved in the production of these online services. There was lots of people, and I can't get into all of those people, but in particular, I want to thank all of our worship volunteers, our leaders, musicians, vocalists, AV techs, who were part of the weekly worship recordings. Playing and leading worship in front of a camera is not easy, but our teams really made the best of it, and I'm really thankful for all of them. I'd also like to say a big thanks to Courtney Rada, my wife, who has been our video production lead from pretty much the beginning of our online transition. Believe me when I tell you, our online content would look very different and not in a good way if it wasn't for Courtney's amazing work. All that having been said, as effective as our online services are, there's still no substitute for being gathered together in one physical space to worship. And obviously, if you're watching this right now, you're still connecting online at this point rather than in person, and that's great. In no way do I want to pressure anyone to gather physically who's not comfortable yet to do that. But the question remains, why has the church typically gathered together in person? What is it about gathering together in a physical space that seems to be such a vital part of what it means to worship as the church, as the people of God? It feels like being in person for worship gatherings is more legitimate, somehow more effective, But is it just a feeling or does it point to something deeper? A more fundamental reality or truth about how we gather as the church to worship. Psalm 122 says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This psalmist is excited to go to the house of God. But what kind of place or experience is being referred to here? What does it mean to go to the house of God? To answer that big question, we'll start out by answering three slightly smaller questions. What is the house of God? Where is the house of God? And how do we get to God's house? The house of God is a place where people encounter the living God. That's our definition. So, okay, we're done. That was easy. (laughs) Moving on, let's unpack this a bit more. I propose that it will be helpful for us to think of the house of God as a physical place, a holy place, and a meeting place. So firstly, the the house of God is a place. Now this may seem simplistic, but what I mean is that it is a particular physical place. From the very beginning of the Bible, whenever God initiated an encounter with people, it was in a particular place. At first, these were places out in nature or the wilderness where God would suddenly reveal himself. I think of Moses and the burning bush. One moment, Moses was on a regular hillside with regular bushes around him. The next moment, He was in front of a burning bush, but actually in the presence of God. He took his shoes off because the ground he was standing on was now holy ground. 
There are many more stories like this of God meeting with people in particular places. Often, the place would then be marked with stones or a monument so that future generations would remember that this is where God met us. God was here. Later in the story of the people of Israel, God's covenant people, there's a transition from seemingly random physical places to a tabernacle, which is a complex tent structure that served as a kind of mobile temple, like God's Winnebago. Later, a permanent home for God was built in Jerusalem, which was the temple. But why does God choose particular places? God's people have always understood that God is the creator and sustainer of all creation. In a sense, he inhabits all creation all the time. This idea can be seen in verses throughout the Bible. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came to being, declares the Lord. Sometimes when I think about God in this way, as inhabiting all of creation, I catch a, glim- a brief glimpse of the glorious truth of these verses. Especially if I'm on a beautiful trail in the woods or on a mountaintop overlooking an expanse of hills and valleys, or on the shore of a lake watching a sunset on the ocean. However, these experiences are usually fleeting. Our powers of concentration and focus are limited. Our ability to relate large, complicated ideas with other large, complicated ideas is limited. It's difficult to hold the idea of God being present everywhere and revealing himself in all of nature with the idea of relating to him in a specific personal way in the here and now. This is a limitation of our cognitive abilities and not a limitation of God's ability to relate to us. Sometimes I think we get this kind of backwards. At some level, we can come to think we're doing God a favor by making it easy for him to find us by gathering in a big building, singing songs together, like God is way up in the stratosphere, looking down, wondering where his people are that want to meet with him. He says, Oh, there's a building with lots of cars in the parking lot on a Sunday morning. Oh, yep, there's a cross on that building. I think I I hear that new Phil Wickham song being played. Aha, that is where some worshipers are that want to meet with me. I guess I'll head down and hang out for a while. No, it's not that God needs help finding us. It's that we need help finding God. In His grace, God uses specific physical places in which to meet with us because our spirituality our ability to relate to the unseen realities of the world is rooted in our physicality. But more on that later. So there is a physical aspect to the house of God, and that is for our benefit. However, it is God that we're wanting to meet with, and God is holy. The first thing that means is that God is righteous, perfect, set apart in a totally different category. In contrast, people are not holy. Since the moment humanity rejected God through disobedience, sin became a barrier between us and a holy God. This barrier and separation is evident in all the encounters between people and God described in the Old Testament period of the biblical story. Again, think of Moses and his encounter with God through a burning bush. He had to remove his shoes. He had to keep his distance. He could come so far, but no farther, and couldn't even perceive God directly, but only saw a flaming bush and heard God's voice. Exodus chapter 40 gives the account of God's instruction to Moses later on how to set up the tabernacle. Remember, this was God's movable house 
that accompanied the nation of Israel during their journey through the desert. Evidence of this kind of distance between God and people is here as well. In Exodus 40, Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant law in it, and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set up what belongs to it. Then bring the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Did you notice a word used twice in this short passage? Curtain. God's presence was represented by the Ark of the Covenant that was the center of the whole tabernacle. But what was surrounding the Ark of the Covenant? Covenant. Curtains. Again, there is a clear separation between the presence of God and unholy people. There's another aspect to the definition of the house of God being a holy place that I want us to notice besides that of perfection or sinlessness. Holy also speaks to the transcendent and supernatural nature of God. Let's read down a few more verses in Exodus 40 from where we left off and see what happens when the tabernacle is used publicly for the first time and God makes his inaugural visit. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So the house of God is a physical place. It is a holy place, and finally, it is a meeting place. Now, I'd like to move up the timeline of biblical history again. We looked at the individual encounters that God had with people like Moses, and then looked at the tabernacle period in which God accompanied Israel on their journey through the desert on their way to the promised land. Now, let's fast forward to the inauguration of another house of God, for the people of Israel. I'm sure you've noticed by now that we're on a whirlwind tour of the history of the house of God in the Bible. I really wish we had time to get into more details about each of these passages we've touched on, but I encourage you to look at these for yourself in your own reading. For our purposes this morning, though, there are some key things I want to look at from that kind of 10,000-foot perspective that will shed some light on our topic. So back to the story. After the people of Israel completed their journey through the desert and finally entered the promised land, they began settling in the land. They went from being primarily a nomadic people to a people with permanent lands and cities and borders and even kings. One of these kings, David, near the end of his life, greatly desired to build God a great temple. He said, why should I have a home built of stone and cedar while God lives in a tent? It turned out that David was not the man destined to build God's permanent house, but his, Solomon, his son Solomon was. Like his father David, Solomon earnestly desired to make a place for the living God to dwell in the midst of the nation of Israel. He desired, along with the faithful of Israel, to meet with God in his house. This desire is clearly shown in one of my favorite passages in the Bible that gives a clear picture of what the house of God is and the nature of how people meet with God there. This is 2 Chronicles 5, 18-25. It's part of a prayer of dedication that King Solomon spoke at the, at the opening of the temple in Jerusalem. It goes like this. 
But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer of your servant that your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty, bringing down on their heads what they have done, and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back to the land you gave them and their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. I love this passage because it provides a catalog of all the ways we desire to meet with God and want him to be present in our lives. Verse 19 says, is it about hearing our cries for mercy? Verse 20, see us, may your eyes be open towards us. Verse 21, hear our prayers, forgive us. Verse 22, bring justice, vindicate us. It goes on talking about restoring us when we've been defeated, providing for us, forgiving our sins. I don't know about you, but this resonates with me and my desires to meet with God and know his presence. In this passage, the desire is sincere. And now God has a big, permanent, extravagant house right in the middle of the capital city of the nation of Israel. But there's still a problem. God is still holy and people are still not holy. There is still that distance, that separation. The Ark of the Covenant was in the center of the temple as it was in the center of the tabernacle, this time in a room called the Holy of Holies. The physical representation of God's very presence, surrounded by floor to ceiling curtains. So we've seen why it's important that the house of God is a physical place. We've seen how it is a holy place, and we've looked at what it means that the house of God is a meeting place. We have a pretty good idea of what the house of God is. Now, where is it? And now we get to the exciting part of the story, the part of the story where God, once and for all, removed the distance between himself and humanity. Again, we're going to fast forward along the timeline of biblical history, this time almost a thousand years after Solomon's temple was completed and dedicated. One day, all those years later, a young carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus from Nazareth was visiting the temple with his disciples. As they were leaving the temple, one of those disciples got his attention and pointed up to one of the impressive buildings in the temple complex. Instead of being impressed, though, Jesus turned to them and said, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. A short time later, Jesus would be arrested and condemned as a criminal and heretic, would be sentenced to death by crucifixion, 
And although he'd never sinned, he would die a sinner's death. But something incredible happened after he breathed his last. Matthew 27, 51 reads, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. Something big was happening here. Something that would change the definition and location of the house of God forever. Through the death of Jesus, that distance that existed between, because of sin would now be taken away through him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That curtain in the temple split for a reason. That distance that made it necessary was gone. God no longer wanted to meet with people through burning bushes or through elaborate tents or grand stone temples. He wanted new temples. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So where is the house of God? Well, if you have faith in Jesus, look to him for rescue from sin and as your only source of righteousness with God, then the house of God is you. But all the definitions of the house of God we looked at before still hold true. The house of God is a physical place because God dwells in us and we gather together as God's people to worship. And then the place that we gather becomes the house of God. The house of God is a holy place because he made us holy through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he wants to reveal his holiness through us to our friends and neighbors and family. The house of God is a meeting place because we experience God living in us and in the midst of our gathered church. Those desires for meeting with God can be satisfied. To be heard, to be seen by God, to have relationship with him through prayer and devotion. So we set out to answer three questions. What is the house of God? Where is the house of God? And how do I get to God's house? But now you might be thinking, hold on, if I'm a Christ follower, then I'm, I'm one of God's houses. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm there all the time. And on one level, this is correct. And that's why we can legitimately gather online to worship. Our living rooms can become the house of God when we use them to worship and meet online. But let me ask you something. Do you feel like God's house every hour of every day? Does your living room feel like the house of God all the time? Yes, it's true that God has chosen to make his dwelling in us. And we are as Christians the physical presence of Jesus in the world. However, again, we run into our limited cognitive abilities and ever-present human weaknesses. When I talked about the house of God being a physical place, I said that our spirituality, our ability to relate to the unseen realities of the world, is rooted in our physicality. Here we need to draw some distinction between our understanding of the house of God and our experience of the house of God. The basic definition of the house of God is the place where people encounter the living God. Now, this place is not just a physical place, but also a spiritual place. It is a physical experience as well as a spiritual one. This is why I think worship is so central to what it means to gather in or gather as the house of God. Worship helps us align the truth about our relationship to God with our experience of that relationship. This is because we engage our bodies in specific intentional ways as well as focus our hearts and minds on God. 
And it's especially effective when we gather physically to worship because we can see and hear each other as we all gather to bring into alignment the truth about the house of God with our experience of the house of God. Let's pray. Holy God, I am so grateful that you desire to live among us, to be in the midst of your people. And I, I'm grateful you've made a way for not only for us to live close to you, but for your presence to dwell in us, for us to become houses of God. And I pray that as we worship, as we go forward thinking about what it means to be the house of God as a gathered church, you'd help us focus on, on the spiritual and the physical, that the, the place matters, but even more what we do in that place, how we express worship to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.